Welcome back to 20s and where to find them. I'm G. And I'm Lena. And this is a podcast about navigating the best and the worst period of your life. Your 20s. Join us as we discuss personal stories, lived experiences, and chat to you and others about this wild part of life. Woo! (laughs) Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of 20s and Where to Find Them. How are you going today, Lena and Bella? (laughs) We have a guest in the studio with us today. That's my very professional introduction, is that we have Bella here. How are you? Go on, Lena, you start. I'm all right. How are you, Bella? I'm also all right. Uh, It's very hot and windy here today in Melbourne. Yeah, very Um, muggy. Yeah. yeah, I think I almost flashed like <laughs> 10 people walking here today, actually. Me too! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was some old guy walking around in our budgie smugglers down the, the middle of the street um, and telling people, everyone that looked at him, that they were also ugly like him. So that was a really nice way to start my, <laughs> my commute to the studio. Well, we are one. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so that that was fun. Um, But anyway, welcome back. Um, Today's very exciting. We have our lovely Bella on the show who is going to be talking to us about quite her unique... Bella, would you like to introduce yourself, please? My name is Bella. I'm 24. And when I was 16, I was diagnosed with something that's called autoimmune hepatitis, which is basically where my immune system um, decides to attack my liver to the point of death. And then that resulted in me needing a transplant when I was 20. So, yeah. That sounds like a great time, Bella. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Wasn't traumatic at all. (laughs) Well, we're very grateful that you've agreed to revisit some of that trauma and talk about having chronic illness in your early 20s and how that's shaped the beginning of your 20s and maybe even beyond but um yeah thank you in advance of, for sharing your story with us and our listeners and our <laughs> listeners I'm sure it's something that people will find interesting and you know, perhaps even um relatable as well on yeah. on diff- lots of different levels I'm sure Well, you can start us off with your highlight then, Bella, of your week. Oh, okay. My highlight would have been today, this morning. I um, actually have been spending the whole day with my family making posada. We uh, do this every year. (laughs) And uh, my dad has outdone himself this year and bought 150 kilos of tomatoes. 150 kilos? 150 kilos. We have like... This pot that is bigger than an industrial kitchen pot and it is a posada pot dedicated for posada Screw making. talking about your liver. I have a lot of <laughs> questions about this posada mission. <laughs> How does one acquire 150 kilos of tomatoes? How does one get it into their house? A man named John at the Perrin Markets. <laughs> It's so funny that this is Bella's highlight considering people in my office have been talking about this for the past two weeks and it's been a recurring conversation. Oh, where are you getting your tomatoes from this year? Are you making passata? Yeah, I it's a big thing. I did not realize this was yeah. a thing. I've never heard of anyone doing this except <laughs> yeah. maybe like Italian nonnas in yeah. Italy, but 
I know we're channeling our inner um, Italian nonna and we're German, so that's. <laughs> <laughs> How long does it take? What well, do you do? see, I asked my dad this the other day just because I wanted to gauge kind of how long I'm committing to this. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said last year he had 120 kilos of tomatoes and he started at 5.30 in the morning and ended at 11 p.m. My God. At night. So a while. <laughs> um, but when I was leaving to come here, actually, they were just about to crack open the bottles of red. So oh. we're, yeah, we're getting there. I think most of the tomatoes have been like crushed. Okay. So how many jars of Posada does 150 kilos? Thank you. That was my next Thank question. Thank you. Of <laughs> tomatoes make. So we're hoping 165 liters. And and then do you keep and that? We or we do you have sell that it? many bottles oh no we keep it we don't sell it at all I've been oh. telling my dad to sell it and like even like do it as a fundraiser but um he's like no I just I really love just being able to give people posada and so like <laughs> someone will come over literally for no reason and he'll be like oh, do you want a bottle of posada and he's just like hands out posada until it gets to the end of the year and then come Christmas time he's very stingy about Oh. Handing out posada. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. But we literally do it this once a year. And and is it a particular time of year thing? Final yeah, question, I promise. I, I, th- I think so. I think so. I think it's like, you know, end of summer. Posada season. Yeah, it's like prime tomato season. Huh. Yeah. So. Well, thank you. That concludes the show. That's <laughs> yeah. <been> very interesting. <laughs> 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 what, what was your highlight, Lena? <laughs> My highlight to end off a very like shitty week um, was today I went to the op shop after park run and I got five items from the $2 rack, mm. which was fantastic. Mm. And the best find of all was a $10 coat that I then looked up on the website and it goes for $250. <sighs> What kind of coat was that? It's like a nice wool blazer looking coat. Ooh, and I'm like, yes. oh, this will be a vibe for winter. Wow. I like that. Yeah. Uh, that is also my highlight is I went op shopping yesterday spontaneously actually with Bella. Um, and we found some good things. Got a, a blazer, a scarf and a skirt that still had its tags on it and it was new. So it was good. All for $30. Um, yeah. Bella, did you have a low light from your week? I did. I did. I had a bit of a, a bit of a rough week in terms of my job. Um, my boss is being a little bit of a see you next Tuesday. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, and that's been a bit rough and I've been a bit down about that. But um, we're making waves of fixing that. So, mm. so yeah, it's, but it was, yeah, it was not the best. But, yeah. Mm. If it makes you feel any better, that's my low life too. (laughs) (laughs) It's, uh, I'm having issues with the way a person in leadership has put, like, a situation they've put me in and I'm Mm. not happy about it. That's always fun. It's always hard when it's, like, teaching as well and, you know, kids become involved. Yeah. 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 Mm. Not unique to either of your careers, (laughs) though. Shitty bosses everywhere. Yeah. Um... But not mine this <laughs> week, sorry. That's not my low light. Um, what is your low light? My low light is um, the Last of Us finale. I, no spoilers, so don't worry, everyone. But I watched it this afternoon. And one, it's a bit of a low light because it's over. And two, it was a lot. 
Were you <laughs> overwhelmed, underwhelmed? Any no, wordy no, no, would no. be overwhelmed with the amount of mushrooms there is in that show. <laughs> I've not, I've not actually seen it yet. Would recommend. I, um, Very good show. Too. And it was not. I was not underwhelmed with like the ending. It was just like a. Ah, oh, I'm not sure if that was the ending to the season I was hoping yeah. for. Mm. It's not the direction that you expected them to take. Yeah, it just I was just it bummed me out a little bit. Mm, I like, but um, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> The other thing we do when we have a guest on is ask an icebreaker question so that our listeners can get to know you a little bit better. So this is our little icebreaker jar. Also sounds really nice on mic. When did you first feel like an adult? Um, can I say not yet? Yes, you can. <laughs> that is very acceptable. Um, not like, I mean, I think for the most part I'm just winging it. But I think maybe when I go to the... the um, supermarket with like a shopping list mm. written and I stick to it I'm like wow I really got my shit together <laughs> yeah. because I am notorious for straying and getting snacks ah uh, yep yeah it's, it's really bad especially if they're on sale oh yeah. especially if they're on sale absolutely like, mm, I could do with a cheeky chip yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah are you the kind of um shopper that knows like the layout of the supermarket and you do like your list in the layout or like approach your shop in a certain way look I think I hope <laughs> that I do but when I get into a supermarket I'm so overwhelmed by mm. everything that's there and like I think I find the aisles are okay I'm okay with the aisles but when it gets to the fresh produce and like if I'm like, oh, I need mushrooms and tomatoes and the zucchini and like, parsley. Where are my 150 like, kilos uh, yeah. of tomatoes? I was going to say, do you really need tomatoes? <laughs> I don't think you do. <laughs> Woolies, I can only find 10 kilos. I need it 150. <laughs> oh. Yeah. No, I feel like that's when I know that I will have made it as an adult is when I like know the layout of the supermarket, I write my list in accordance to it and then I do it because I still feel like uh, even though I go to like the same supermarket most weeks, I like go in there and I'm like, I don't know where this thing is. And then I walk like four aisles away and I'm like, oh, it was five aisles back there. Anyway. Good way to get your steps up. Yeah. Yeah. But bad for the snack buying. Yeah. Because then you have to walk past more snacks. Maybe let's dive right in mm -hmm. um, now that we've covered the essentials of pastata and supermarkets. It's pastata. Um, oh, <laughs> no. I wasn't going to say anything. I was just going to let it fly, but I'm glad that you said something. <laughs> oh, we have to start again. Let's start again. How do you say it? Pasata. 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 Pastata works too. Like ah, it fine. sounds more fun. <laughs> anyway, Bella, now you're going to talk, and I'm not going to say anything for the rest of the episode. I know you okay. mentioned briefly in your intro um, when you were diagnosed and what it is, but can you talk us through your your story? How did you know that something was wrong? It was very interesting actually being diagnosed because growing up, I was what you'd consider a very healthy child, which is how all my doctors kind of perceived me. Um, you know, I was like fit, 
playing netball like three times a week, playing basketball and stuff like that. Um, and then I, I was, I was like 15 and a half, I guess you could say. And I hadn't got my period yet. And that was like a bit of a question why, because my mom got it when she was really young. And so it kind of genetically kind of happens similarly like that. Um, and so we went to my doctor, I got a blood test just to see like how my hormones and stuff were. And then um, they called me and was like, oh, we need you to go straight to the children's hospital. And we were like, why? And they thought I had a blood disorder because my platelets were low. And so I spent probably three months with a haematologist looking for like all the, every kind of blood disorder that you could look for under the sun. Um, came back with nothing and then they were like mm, we'll send you to a gastroenterologist to see if there's anything else going on and then I think three another three months later had some more blood tests some scans um, I had a few liver biopsies and it came back that I had autoimmune hepatitis which is just a very rare and niche autoimmune issue but it is um four times more likely to occur in women and they don't really know how it comes across but they think there might be like a hereditary link or it could have just been like I got a virus one day and it just sent my immune system into overdrive um so yeah that's how I was diagnosed um and how did that kind of make you feel when you found out um your little teenage self (laughs) (laughs) I guess like when I first was diagnosed I didn't really understand the gravity of the situation and I think that was in part to do with the fact that I was at the children's hospital and being a child they tend to try and sugarcoat the severity of the situation a little bit just to try not to like scare you shitless Mm. um but like I remember um because I was diagnosed probably two three weeks after I just come back from like a trip to New Zealand playing netball for the school and so like fit and healthy had no symptoms of anything other than I was tired sometimes and I bruised easily yeah and then I was diagnosed and I remember I was telling my friends um at school one day because obviously they'd ask how everything was going and they're kind of they did care like they cared about what was going on but then I told them I was like oh like I got diagnosed and it's called autoimmune hepatitis it's a liver disease and I remember one of my friends um she laughed at me and was like oh who have you been fucking (laughs) (laughs) because you hear the word hepatitis and you think hep b hep c like all those like sexually transmitted yeah, yeah yeah and it's and I was like what like and I hadn't even thought about that because it was like autoimmune like I was I've always been like a stem girly a science (laughs) nut um and I was like oh autoimmune it's literally in the name it's my immune system is inflaming my liver and she just immediately went straight to like oh I must have been like a promiscuous teenager um (laughs) kids are so mean yeah (laughs) it was just it was a bit of a shock um but like you know when I was diagnosed I was fine like I was still healthy and stuff and it wasn't until I actually started taking um the medication to like treat it um that I started getting any symptoms at all Mm. um so like, had I not got that blood test, I wouldn't have known anything. And then all of a sudden, like, yeah, I started taking all this medication and it was the medication that was making me sick more so than the actual disease itself. I mean, granted, the disease was killing me, mm. but I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
I was ignorant. So yeah, it was it was very strange. And like, yeah, I think everyone that I went to school with, they kind of just didn't understand because it's a disease that it's so niche that it's not like cancer. If you say to someone mm. who's 15, 16, oh, I have cancer, they understand what you're talking about and they understand how scary and realistic it is. But if you say to someone, oh, I have autoimmune hepatitis, they're like, huh? What? <laughs> what's that? <laughs> yeah. Did that make you feel like an outsider from other people your age? Not initially. I think when things started getting worse, that was when I definitely started feeling isolated. Mm. Um, it kind of just... Like I started treatment, um, which I should preface that like treatment, the treatment doesn't make it better. It just like tries to prevent it from progressing. Mm -hmm. And when I was 16 and like starting this treatment, they were all very like optimistic. And it was if I was going to need a transplant, if this, if that, like they all thought that I'd respond well to the treatment. But um yeah, as the treatment kind of went along, it was like, it's very intense. I was on a lot of hard drugs that made me really sick. Like I, was, I wasn't able to stomach food and I was in a lot of pain. Um, and that meant that I started missing school more mm-hmm. and more. And I would um, also, it like suppressed my immune system. And so I'd get um, infections and blood infections and pancreatitis. And I, like I ended up being in and out of hospital, like probably fortnightly with like various kinds of infections or pain or Mm -hmm. what have you um so I started missing a lot of school and that was when I started feeling really isolated because a people didn't understand the gravity of the situation that I was facing and b I wasn't in their immediate eyesight so you almost get forgotten about because everyone's so swept up in high school year 11 Mm. year 12 and if you're not there you're not there so yeah it started it started getting very isolating I reckon around year 12 yeah, it was when it got a bit bit rough. Mm. But <laughs> it sounds really hard and really scary. What does the treatment entail? Like you said, like a lot of drugs. Was it? Um, did you have to go to hospital to get treatment for it, or was it all stuff you did at home? It was. It was all um, just like oral medication that I could uh-huh. take at home. But they're like heavy steroids, yeah. um, and then because steroids are really bad for you, like they tried steroid sparing agents but it turns out that I was allergic to them um and so then they put me on like chemo drugs to try and suppress my immune system that way and I went on like a couple of experimental drugs while I was at the children's yeah like a whole cocktail it was it was definitely the steroids that made everything bad Mm -hmm. because they're an anti-inflammatory essentially but like they make you swell up and like retain fluid so I was 16, 17 and I was like putting on all this weight that wasn't fat, but like, you know, and this was in the era where the, the thigh gap was all the rage. And yeah. Um, yeah, so I became just really insecure about my body and myself just being chronically ill. And then because I wasn't responding to the treatment as well as they hoped, I was turning jaundice because my liver was progressively getting worse. Is that um, why you turn yellow? Yeah, so it's the uh, it's the bilirubin, in the, the increase of bilirubin um, that your liver produces when it starts to go into failure, and it like leaks into the skin because it's like a yellowy, um, pigmented. Mm. I don't know if it's a protein. I'm not very sure. Mm. <laughs> I should know. <laughs> um, but yeah, it like leaks into the skin into like your eyes, and that's why you turn that kind of yellowy jaundiced color. 
Mm. Yeah. And so, yeah, it was just like along with being physically ill, mm. I was also just like just didn't want to go out in public because I, I thought I was fat and ugly because I was yellow and like everyone would stare. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was, but it was like it was a invisible illness in the sense that, like, had you looked at me, you wouldn't have realized that I was sick. Mm-hmm. I didn't have like a broken arm or, yeah. you know, I wasn't on crutches, so mm. I just looked funny. How did the transplant come about? When did they decide? All right, it's time to transplant you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Is that the medical term? <laughs> Can you tell I'm also a STEM girl? <laughs> Time to be transplanted. <laughs> I'm just imagining, you know, in Harry Potter when they take the mandrakes out of one pot and they put it into another? Yeah. That's what they did to Bella. They're like, time for you to go over here. <laughs> Is that what happened? Yeah. Tell us. It's basically like getting a car service. You know, like getting an oil change. <laughs> um, no, so I first went on the transplant list when I was 17 and things were looking very dicey. This was like when I was in year 12 and I wasn't responding to any of the medication. Um, so I went on the transplant list and then in the meet, like at the same time, I was put on this experimental um, drug and that seemed to be working and like stabilising me enough that they were like happy to keep me on that and take me off the transplant list because they wanted to like prolong my liver as long as possible. Um, so that worked for a while and then when I was transferred to the Austin because I became like an adult, <laughs> it was disgusting, um, I, I went, yeah, when I went to the Austin and like we discussed my case with the doctors, they weren't comfortable keeping me on that medication just because they didn't know enough about it and they just didn't want any um, side effects to happen considering I had such a bad reaction to all the other medication that I was on. Um, so they put me back onto the regular kind of drug regime, I guess. Um, and that, like, it worked enough, um, but I was, like, slowly declining. And then all of a sudden, I think it was um, it was October, or I guess it was yeah, probably September of 2018, all of a sudden, like, I just took a massive dive and just things just went spiralling out of control. And then I was put on the list in October of 2018. They put you on the list based off, like, your blood numbers and, like, how things are looking based off your blood work. Like, normally they put you on the list when your bilirubin count reaches over 100. Mm-hmm. So I remember being put on the list when my bilirubin count was, like, 105, 120, around there. And then within like two, three weeks, my bilirubin was up at 400. Yeah, it was like things just went spiralling out of control. And yeah, so I was put on the transplant list and like within like a couple of weeks, I went from just being on the list to being top of the list and like being considered basically like emergent. And they thought because of my placement on the list that like I would have been transplanted by Christmas time and I was put on the list in October and some people have been on the list for like multiple years and they thought I was going to be on the list uh going to be transplanted by December and then I wasn't and then they're like oh definitely by your birthday which is January and then I wasn't and then after that because I just turned 20 they like because my numbers are still really bad but they Mm. were like stable bad (laughs) so it's fine (laughs) it's fine (laughs) no worries 
after I still wasn't transplanted after like two months, then they were like, you really need to get transplanted because your liver's not going to hold out for more than a few more months. Like you've only got a few more months before things become very dire, which is like the nicest way that doctors can say like, you've got a few months to live. You'll be dead. (laughs) Yeah. Like we really need to get this show on the road, which was, yeah, that was a bit scary. Once I was 17, it didn't become a question of if I needed a transplant. It became a question of when. And that kind of held for a little while. And then I turned like 19. Oh, I was almost turning 20. And it was like, okay, we need to do this and we need to do this now. Like this is like emergent. Mm. Yeah, it was a bit bit scary, a bit daunting. But yeah. When they told you like we need to do this now or you're going to have like a couple of months and it's going to be really bad. What do you even do? Like how do you even respond and deal with that? Something that's probably felt so out of your control. It was... Interesting because I feel like a lot of people think that like I would have been terrified of dying Mm. but I don't think I ever was scared that I wasn't going to survive. It was more just like I analysed my own mortality a little bit more and I realised like the gravity of the situation. I was like wow this is really serious like Mm. this is actually happening like it's not just that I'm sick and that I'm sick it's like I'm 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 dying like my my whole body is like giving up on me at this point Mm. but like I was in communication with my doctors weekly at this point um and they made sure that like everything was fine like I was getting blood tests twice a week and they had a very close eye on me and so it, it was daunting definitely like I I know that I had like like I'd go to sleep and I'd have dreams of like dying Mm. but I was never scared I was never scared um of actually dying because when you do the work up to go on the transplant list they tell you everything you need to know and I think in the 25 years that they've been doing liver transplants in Victoria I think they've lost like five patients while waiting for a transplant like and they've done thousands of them Mm. so they never let it get to that point yeah which was very reassuring. It was definitely scary because, like, I mean, what 20-year-old actually questions their mortality? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I also, like, I just didn't have a regular teenagehood, I guess. Mm. So I was already having to kind of be a bit more mature with how I acted because I was chronically ill from, you know, 16 years yeah. of age. At this point, you know, <laughs> I was just trying to make through. Yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah being sick in those like late years of your teens did you feel like you missed out on on some of those like experiences absolutely I um I missed my formal Mm. my year 12 formal and I missed um graduation and valedictory actually no I was at valedictory dinner for like half an hour (laughs) before I was like nah gonna go home I'm too (laughs) sick um so I like I missed out on basically well I had a 26% attendance for year 12 Mm. like I technically wasn't meant to graduate (laughs) you know I didn't even get to experience sitting my exams with my peers I sat my exams at home um with like a examiner sitting next to me um and like I missed 
everyone turning 18 and going mm. out drinking and getting drunk and stuff because I just wasn't allowed to do yeah, that. I and say, it was like, um, I wouldn't have done that. Like, <laughs> I'm guessing drinking was off the cards. Yeah, <laughs> yeah look, it was, it was definitely, it, it, I don't think it was that it was off the cards. I think it was just that I couldn't physically get out of bed, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, get out of hospital. Um, yeah, like I, I definitely had like, a glass of champagne for my 18th birthday and shit cool. like that. Like I, <laughs> I would celebrate, but I wouldn't go out drinking and I wouldn't mm. go getting drunk with my friends. Mm. Um, it sounds very sad, but I didn't really have any friends left oh. by that point because it was all school friends and, mm. you know, they're all f- like, they're in their own little bubbles and that bubble does not include a chronically ill girl. It's not that I exactly had that opportunity. Yeah. That breaks my heart. Oh, it's yeah, okay. It's really sad. I've got friends now, guys. I, I know. I know. <laughs> Bella, you have a lot of friends. <laughs> I have a lot of friends now. I'm just thinking about like, I'm putting yeah. putting myself projecting a little bit and being yeah. like, you're right. When you're 18, 19, 20, like your friends are so central and you are existing in this little bubble of new experiences yeah, together. Yeah, you're, you're a young adult. And that's yeah. like, when I look back on it now, I can look back on it rationally and be like yes I understand why that happened to me but when I was 18 19 I hated everyone I went to school with because I was like how could you abandon me when I needed friends the most Mm. now I'm like yeah I just wasn't there and like when you're 16 17 18 you're a bit selfish you're a bit of a prick like it's it's fine they're not focused on this one girl that started not showing up to school and then you know is still still hanging around but you know like and also, what do you say to that? What, what do you yeah. say to someone who's chronically ill? Like, hope you feel better. It's like, well, I won't, but thank you. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, it's just, it's hard when you're a, a young adult and you've got your whole life ahead of you and you, yeah, you don't want to be thinking about that shit. Mm. Just mm. understandable. And when did you get the transplant? February 27th, 2019. Mm-hmm. It's a very special day for me. It's a... Uh, like a second birthday, I guess. Yeah, so I was I just turned twenty at that point. Yeah, it was a very, very big day. Very big day. <laughs> Not just for my body, but <laughs> Were you nervous about when you like told, Okay, we've got a liver? Also, how soon do they know? Like is it like a like the day before days hours? or hours? Um, like- well, it's actually kind of a funny story because I went into hospital like two days prior to my transplant thinking that I had appendicitis because I got all these infections randomly and I went to my doctors I was like I think I've got appendicitis and they're like how would you know I was like I just I'm a stem girly (laughs) (laughs) believe me I'm a stem girly transplant me now (laughs) I could do it myself (laughs) yeah and they were like okay we'll we'll scan you and have a look and so I had a scan and then they were like oh we need to get the surgeon to come talk to you and I was like, is this appendicitis? Was I actually right? Like I was a little <laughs> bit excited. I was like, oh yeah, I got it. Turns out it wasn't. It was actually like a blood clot that had completely blocked my bowel um, because of all this side shit that went on with my liver. It just meant that I had really like sticky blood. Um, and so I was really prone to clots. Um, and so I had this massive blood clot that was blocking my bowel and the doctor this is actually very embarrassing because I was <laughs> such a stubborn bitch but this, the doctor said to me they were like oh we're gonna need to cut out your bowel um because otherwise your bowel is gonna die 
And so we got, we got it. Like, there's no other way that we can get rid of this clot. We need to cut it out. And I was just like, no. <laughs> like, no. I don't... I, I say no. <laughs> I'm not doing that. Um, because they were like, oh, you're going to need a colostomy bag. Um, and I was like, how long will I need a colostomy bag for? And they were like, oh, indefinitely. Like, we're not sure. And so I was like, no, absolutely not. And they were like, what do you mean? I was like, well... I've been through four years of being chronically ill with a transplant Mm. and now you're going to try and take out my bag and make me wear a colostomy bag for the rest Mm. of my life as well as have a liver transplant. I was like, absolutely not. Like one thing is enough. I'm not, I'm not doing it. I'm Mm. not being the girl with the poo bag. Um, Not that there's anything wrong with anyone wearing a colostomy bag. I was just, I just thought that that was the end of the world for me. I was like, it's hard enough being a young adult being chronically ill. Yeah. I don't want to have to explain the fact that I have to wear this thing every day. Mm. Um, So I was like, absolutely not. And then my dad was like, is there any other way that we can fix this? And the doctor was like, a transplant. (laughs) (laughs) Like, that would be nice, wouldn't it? (laughs) Yeah, we're waiting for that one. Um, Yeah, and so they were like, well, we'll put you on blood thinners um, for the next three days and see how things go. But after three days, if it hasn't cleared, we're going to have to do the surgery. Otherwise, like, this could also kill you. Um, and I was like, okay, fine. So within two days, it still hadn't cleared. And then the next morning, I woke up because I was still in hospital and I was, I know the hospital routine at 7am, <laughs> you get your breakfast. <laughs> and it was 7am and I didn't get my breakfast. And I was like, can I, can I be fed please? And then the nurse was like, oh no, you're fasting. And I was like, for what? Am I having a scan? And they were like, oh, has no one told you? I was like, told, told me what? And they were like, oh, I'll go get the doctor. And I was like, okay. Here we go. <laughs> I was like, can you just tell me what's going on? And then a doctor came in um, and was like, yeah, you can't eat right now. And I was like, why not? And they were like, oh, has no one told you? I was like, told me? What? <laughs> what are they telling me? Like, I don't know what's going on. Like, why can't I eat? I just want to fucking eat. And then they were like, okay, hang on. <laughs> and they got one of the, the transplant doctors, the one of the surgeons. And he came in and he was like, oh, you wanted to speak to me? I was like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> and he was like, oh, has no one told you? I was like, no, no one's told me anything. And he was like, oh, it's probably because we're trying to get in contact with your dad. And I was like, well, that's great. My dad's not here. I'm here. What's going on? And he was like, oh, we have a liver for you. Was huh? that so hard? I was like, huh? <laughs> you what? And he was like, yeah, like we've been, we've been on the phone with your dad. And I was like, okay, but my dad is not here. I'm in the hospital. Like you could have just come to me. <laughs> but because when I did the workout, they asked me, who did I want them to call? It, when you know the time comes and I was like call my dad do not call me I do not want to know I do not want to be the one to have to like emotionally deal with this and I want my dad to tell me and so they were calling dad and so then I called dad and he was like boo because that's his nickname for me he's like boo they've got a liver for you I was like I know <laughs> and he was like I'm coming in I was like okay <laughs> um and then that was like eight thirty in the morning and then I was scheduled to start my surgery at 12.30, but I was delayed an hour because the donor was generously donating a lot of organs. So there was a lot of transplant teams and like um, collection teams doing like um, harvestation and stuff. 
harvestation, is that a word? I don't know, harvesting the organs. Mm. Um, yeah, so I was delayed a little bit. But, yeah, so it was, like, in a few hours, within, yeah, like, 7 a.m. to 1.30-ish um, in the afternoon. Were you feeling a bit surreal? I feel like in that situation I'd be like, it's not actually going to happen. Yeah. Again. And, like, when they delay it, you're like, oh, my yeah. God, it's not happening anymore. <laughs> well, that's the thing is because the doctors make you very aware. They're like, right up until you're, like cut open the donor family can say no at any time they Mm. can say no and like you could be open and if they say no we just have to stitch you back up like it might not actually ever happen um like you might full on go under and then you know come back and still have your own liver um so yeah there was a part of me that was like oh wow this is really surreal but Mm. also there was another part of me that was like like I've had so many procedures done so it just felt like I was prepping for another procedure except that my uncle came (laughs) and said hi (laughs) ate a sausage roll in front of me I was like that's not very nice (laughs) (laughs) yeah it was very surreal and I didn't really have time to be nervous about it Mm. I was more excited about anything right up until I was like leaving my hospital room to go to the surgery room and I was like oh, this is happening. And then I got a little bit nervous and I was like, Dad, can you stay with me? Can you stay while they put me to sleep? <laughs> yeah, which was cool because they, they were able to. So he, he got all gowned up when I was getting gowned up too. Um, yeah, and he was there holding my hand as I, as I went to sleep, Yeah, which was very nice. And then you woke up and you felt <clears throat> better. Oh, no. Because <laughs> it's magically been like this. Yeah. Yeah. Fixes everything. Um, yeah, no. So th- the the surgery was like 12, 13 hours, I think. Fuck, that's a long time. Yeah, it's a long time. And then afterwards, so while I had my transplant, they also like got a pipe cleaner essentially and tried to clean out that blood clot. Um, so that was cool. I didn't actually need to get my bowel cut out, which is yay me. No poop um, bag for you. No yeah. poop bag for me. That's a, that is a Hail Mary uh, of a story yeah. too. Of just like, oh, the two things that could fix it. Yeah. And then one wasn't well, working. Well, I think, I think because of the whole blood clot, I went to like emergent and yeah. like, they were like, just get a liver because mm. the donor liver was actually not the same blood type as my blood type Mm. but it was one of two combinations that can work and like one blood type would switch Mm -hmm. um to the other yeah so that was very lucky yeah so basically my my surgery was 12 13 hours long and then they tried to keep me sedated for another 12 hours just to make sure everything was functioning and then I was woke up in ICU and I had a million tubes yeah in me (laughs) it's a very different type of surgery to most 20 year olds go in and get their wisdom teeth out. Yeah. Um, it's very different. <laughs> Just different. <laughs> I was actually more scared to get my wisdom teeth taken out than I was for my transplant. <laughs> I would say why, but I feel like I, it, I, I don't know. I mean, she makes pasada, so like... <laughs> pastata. Pastata. Yeah. That's, that's very funny. Yeah. Talk me through a little bit like post-transplant. Mm. Like how did your life start to change well it's actually crazy like I started recovering really quickly after I think like maybe two three days after like all my coloring returned back to normal I was a normal color which was really nice it was um I wasn't awake when this happened but my my friend told me because she was in the hospital room with me when she spoke to my stepdad like he was like oh her skin is the color of peaches (laughs) it was the cutest thing like because I'd been yellow for so long but yeah like I recovered pretty quickly I did need an emergency surgery 
about a week later because there was a nick on the back of the liver mm. um, and I was bleeding into my abdomen. So I did have another six-hour surgery where they, like, sucked out six litres of blood, which is a bit oh. gross. So that, that stunted my recovery quite a lot, actually, because after my transplant I was in ICU for, I think, three days and mm. then I was on the ward and then I went back into surgery and I was back in ICU and I think I was in ICU for five days and that was, like, the hardest bit of my recovery because mm. I got um a fever from that and um my heart rate was at like 180 um for like three days and my like God. my dad was like how long can her heart maintain that and the doctor was like oh like how long can um someone run a marathon for I was like oh that's not really what you want to say <laughs> to a worried parent yeah um but once I kind of cleared that and I was back on the ward mm. I recovered really quickly I was I think I spent a total of two and a half weeks in hospital and then I was back at home and I was doing um, rehab physio twice a week and then I was back driving after two months and back working after three I think and I was back playing basketball after five months which is practically unheard of they (laughs) normally make you wait at least six months but um I went to my rehab physio, Mm -hmm. got strong. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and, like, basically at six months I was living a normal life again. Mm. Like, it it was so fun. I think even I could say that after three months I was living a normal life. I just wasn't able to do contact sports, funnily enough. But I wasn't able to use my um, ab muscles Mm. for three months, Mm. like, post-surgery. So, yeah, recovery was actually very quick, which was crazy Mm. to think that it was, like four years of being so sick and I was like yeah. oh you're better now <laughs> everything's all good that must have felt wild like yeah yeah it was interesting because like I hadn't really experienced what healthy was mm. as a young adult um so I had all this like all, all these things to do and I was like <laughs> I don't know I don't know what I'm meant to do now like <laughs> make friends I guess <laughs> Is there any part of you now when you're like making friends or navigating your 20s where you have that small thought at the back of your head that's like, oh, I could get sick again? Or does that not ever happen to you? Yeah, like my doctors have spoken to me that, you know, I still technically have autoimmune hepatitis, but I'm on um, immunosuppressants for the rest of my life now. Um, And basically like it suppresses my immune system enough that they that it's not gonna um attack my liver that doesn't mean that you know something else might not come along like the drugs that I'm on is pretty bad for your um kidneys so I could go into kidney failure (laughs) this normally takes about 20 years so like because I'm so young they're like you have your whole life ahead of you um so anything could happen you might need another one in the future they hope not because the liver that I got was so healthy um, and it was perfect essentially. So they are hoping that things are good. And that's just, it's also, you know, how well I take care of it, I guess. And like, don't do stupid things. Like I don't go binge drinking and stuff like that. Mm. Could you speak a little bit about now what you study and maybe how this experience has influenced that? Being sick, I got a really, um, I got really interested in drugs. <laughs> really liked my drugs. Um, yeah, so it kind of, it influenced me into studying pharmacology. Um, and now I just, 
I finished my honours in pharmacology last year and um, in a couple of months I'm going to be starting my PhD in uh, pharmacology and I'm going to be looking at liver disease, specifically NASH, which is like non-alcoholic um, liver disease, which is what Australia struggles most with at the moment um, with our increasing rate of obesity. It's the main cause for liver transplants. And so, yeah, I'm hoping to work with my liver doctors, actually, in, in a collaboration of sorts to um, hopefully look at new therapeutic avenues for liver disease. That's cool. <laughs> that is very cool. And yeah. I'm going to add in one thing that you said to me off mic that stuck with me about this potential PhD um, that I think is really cool is that part of why you want to look at different therapeutics is because of what you mentioned earlier in the episode where you felt like um, the stimulant drugs that they put you on and things like that made you feel really insecure and impacted yeah. your life as a teenager. Yeah, they look, they're, they're pretty rough drugs to be put on um, no matter what age you're on. But um, it's also, they're not specific for mm. liver disease at all. It's just like they don't have any... Um, specific treatment for inflammation of the liver except to reduce your immune system they're pretty rough on your entire body not just trying to fix your liver and so yeah I just feel like there are there has to be better options out there and that we just need to look for them when you mentioned briefly before that the liver you received was quite healthy um do you know anything about the donor or like how old the liver was? How does that side of things work? Yeah, so um, unlike in the US, we're not allowed to know anything about our donors. Mm-hmm. Um, and likewise, they're not allowed to know anything about us. Um, so I don't actually know anything to do with my donor. But the only thing that I do know is that it came from a young male. And I think I know that because of the slip of a slip of the tongue <laughs> from one of the doctors. Yeah, like we're not allowed to know. Um, however, that doesn't mean that we can't have communication with them. So I am able to write my donor family a letter saying thank you and like what my life is like now. And likewise, they're able to respond. But it's also, yeah, it just depends on if you're, if you want to, like they don't make you mm-hmm. or anything like that. It's just, it's just if you want to, um, which I think is really nice. And like, I do have plans to write them a letter. Emotionally, I'm not there yet because how do you say thank you to someone for saving your life when their loved one tragically died in the process? Like, mm. It's so hard to be in that position to, you know, agree to donate your loved one's organs. And so it's just like the, I, there are just no words that I can yeah. say how grateful I am to them um, about letting me live, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, I'll get there. I'll get there. Mm. We're, um, we're four years post-transplant <laughs> now, so maybe, maybe next year. Five-year anniversary. Five-year anniversary <laughs> on my liveversary. Mm. And maybe they'll reply to me, maybe they won't. Like, it just depends on if they're ready and I'm ready. I also love your liver-versaries as well. I think they're so so special to, um, like, celebrate another day in your, like like you said before, like another birthday kind of milestone. Um, Yeah. Because, yeah, it is in a way, like, you got to live because of that day. It's a celebration. Yeah. And um, 
it's also just because no one really my age goes through this or even has people that has experienced it in their lives that it's just an opportunity to kind of raise awareness that this mm. happens to young people as well um, and like just raise awareness for organ donation and you know mm. everyone register to become an organ donor please can you actually explain how <coughs> to do that if people don't know um yeah so it's a it's an opt-in situation so you can go through medicare i think i, th- I believe because i i'm a it's registered organ donor yeah and yeah. i think in australia if you just look up uh registered organ yeah. donation there's multiple ways all you need to do is like have your medicare um, card like yeah. the numbers and yeah register and I think you can get it on your driver's license as well yeah and um they sent me a card that you can put yeah. in your wallet as well yeah but also like it's it's imperative to have that conversation with your loved ones mm-hmm. um so that everyone knows your wishes because at the end of the day they are the ones that get to make the call so yeah. whether you're registered or not they can say yes or no mm-hmm. um so if you are registered and then your family doesn't want that to happen they can say no so you need to definitely have that conversation with your with your loved ones to be like this is what I want can you please respect that yeah I think that's the most important thing and if like if you're not comfortable with that there's other ways that you can help like donating blood donating plasma I Mm. think if you've recently had a tattoo you can (laughs) still donate plasma which is very important unless you've gotten that tattoo overseas because it's considered unlicensed oh, i oh. recently found out Damn. interesting yeah if you get a tattoo outside of australia you cannot donate plasma because wow. they consider it unlicensed even if it was a very professional licensed place Damn. that you went and got it done i do have one question that i think would be good to end on um do you have any advice for people who are our age or younger or closer to our age maybe a bit older that are going through something like this I think just like reach out to your friends like let them know that you're struggling I think that's one thing that I didn't do when I was younger because I didn't really know how I was just telling people that you need their help and that you need their support and that you need like a little bit of love because it can be very isolating and at the end of the day people are not going to understand what you're going through and that's okay. I'd say don't expect them to understand. Everyone's experience is different. But if you let them know, like, I'm actually struggling at the moment, it would be great if you could, if we could go get a coffee or something just to take my mind off of it. Uh, you'd have to be a pretty shit person not to do that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, at the end of the day, no one knows how to act in that situation. They don't know what you want, um, whether they want to leave you alone, whether they whether you want to talk about it, whether you don't want to talk about it. I think if you hold that narrative and you, you explain what you want and what you need from people, they're going to be fine with providing that. Like, I think just reach out to your loved ones. They're, they're not going to understand, but they're going to try. Mm. And that's all you can ask. That's a so, beautiful answer. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Bella. Yeah. No worries. And thank you for being so generous in sharing your story. Um, I've known you for a few years now, but even I learnt things today. So thank you very much. No worries. Happy to be here. Yeah, great. All right, let's do some recommendations to wrap up the show. Yeah. Yeah, do you want to kick us off, Lena? Okay. (laughs) My recommendation of the week, and no, it's not profound. (laughs) Are we surprised? Um, Is Ted Lasso which is a TV show on Apple TV, which is unfortunate. But um, (laughs) (laughs) 
but the new season is currently out and I've been waiting two years for <laughs> season three to come out and it is the last season uh, and it's just about an American football coach who comes to England to teach a soccer team and the premise originally is so that that soccer team fails but it turns out that he's such a great coach that it does <laughs> wonders and it's such a feel-good show that you can't not watch it. You can be in any headspace and watch Ted Lasso, I think. Um, yeah. So I think I've seen an episode of that actually. It's and so yeah, good. I think and it was it's good. British comedy is just fantastic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, the Brits do comedy good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my recommendation isn't a book this week. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> my recommendation is to go op shopping. Oh. <laughs> I, I wonder why. <laughs> no, no, no. It's it's greater than my recent op shop purchases. It is um, last year, actually. I set the goal of trying not to buy any new clothes and to just become a bit more aware of, like, the impact that buying new clothes and the fast fashion industry has on the planet and people's lives and things like that. So I made it a conscious effort. And um, to be honest, the switch has been so much easier than I thought it would be. I probably still a bit guilty of having a too big of a wardrobe. I do still buy clothes a bit often, but they are all almost always now bought secondhand unless they're like an essential item like underwear or something. But please don't buy your <laughs> yeah, underwear no, that, secondhand. That's no, please gritty. don't do that. <laughs> yeah, just like I've been amazed how many like fashionable in fashion things I can find in like an op shop or a secondhand market. So would recommend giving that a try. You do very well when you you. op shop. You're my good luck charm a couple of times though. I'm very jealous (laughs) because I do not have that luck at all. (laughs) What about you, Bella? Do you have a recommendation you'd like to share? I do. I've recently read a book. Go figure. (laughs) I read read a lot of books. It's called The Maidens by Alex McAlady. Is that the guy who wrote The Silent Patient? The Silent Patient, yeah. That's a good book. That's a good book. So that... The Silent Patient was his debut um, novel and was amazing. Loved that book. But The Maidens is his second novel and I think I actually like that book even more. I read it in two days without like dedicating a solid chunk of my day to reading. I was just like here and there reading it. It was such a quick read. It's um, a really good thriller um, murder mystery. Mm. It's got um, the dark academia vibes. It's got Greek tragedy in it. it oh, so good. So good. <laughs> Did you buy it? Can I borrow it from you? I, I actually bought it from his op shop. Oh, there I you know. go. <laughs> I, yes, you can borrow it. Absolutely. Great. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you again, Bella. That was really special. And I hope that everyone listening at home or on their way to work or wherever you listen gets a lot out of your story too yeah thanks guys for having me that's okay and we'll see you next time (laughs) (laughs) well i don't see you but you'll hear us and you'll hear us next week whatever all right goodbye goodbye Bye. Bye. this podcast was recorded at the victorian state library on rwandri land always was always will be aboriginal land